Thanks, Jeb. Is it working? Yep, good stuff. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're in our, um, our vision series still, and we've got, uh, this is the last week of our vision series. Now, we've been primarily sticking around in verse 2 uh, in Isaiah 54. We're going to look at verse 3 tonight. I'm just going to read uh, Isaiah 54, 2 and 3 together um, before we uh, start kicking into it. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. An interesting period of history where this passage in Isaiah is kind of plucked from. It's actually quite a long way away from us. So we're standing at a point in history and then it seems to be all the way over there, but God still seems fit to speak this truth into his people and it's somehow carried forward. And when the leaders of our church have, have sat and we've prayed, look, look what, are you, what are you saying to us? He's drawn us to this passage and he said, enlarge your tent. Make, extend out the curtains, put the tent pegs in deep, don't hold back, spread out to the right and to the left. And if you're like me and you read something like this and you think, well, what, what does that mean in my life? How do I discern that? And do I even have the capacity to do anything that looks like this? You might be a little bit daunted. I know I am. And so my hope and my heart tonight is really to encourage the socks off you. So when you leave here, you will leave here thinking and finding yourselves in this verse, right in the center of it all. Let's... Start making our way through to that point, hey? Flip over to the next slide. Um, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was remembering some good old days. I grew up in northern New South Wales in a place called Mewillambar. Has anybody, anybody heard of Mewillambar? Yeah. So Mewillambar, there's not much there, really. There's shops and a park, and that's about it. But there are some soccer fields. And I can remember playing for the Mewillambar Saints. The logo was a stick figure with a halo on it. <laughs> Go to the Mewillambar Saints, come on. And we're playing against Barring Bar and these other places that are around northern New South Wales. But under fives, under fives. Have you ever seen under fives soccer? Under fives soccer looks a bit like that. Normally in soccer, you see the ball and maybe one or two people going for the ball. This is like the whole of two teams seems to be going for the ball. That's because under fives soccer is like a swarm of bees just chasing this ball around. That's what it is. I can still remember the coach... Looking at the team now, at halftime talk. Now, now, guys, come on. You've just got to spread out. And you're looking at him going, no, that's not going to be as fun as just chasing that ball. I probably gave him the most glazed look of them all. I love chasing that ball around. God, I think, sometimes looks down at his people. And just like the coach is giving a new, a fresh vision to the team, hey, can, can you do this instead? Have a look at this. See yourselves in this way as a spread out team passing the ball around to each other. So too, I think God looks down at his people sometimes and he says, hey guys, I have a vision for you, I have a plan for you, and it looks like this. And just so happens, we, we learn from Isaiah 54 here, the passage that God has led us to, that he seems to be calling us to enlarge the tent and spread out. Now we're not in a soccer game. We're actually in history, real life God's plan history. I think it's important to acknowledge that 
this passage in Isaiah is not just unique to Isaiah. These concepts aren't just unique to Isaiah. In fact, God's been on this wavelength for a very, 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 very long time. It's helpful for us to go back right to the beginning and think through, okay, so humankind has been created. We've decided, you know what, God? I think we'll go our own way. I think I'll just eat from the fruit I was, I was told not to eat from, and I'll just keep carrying on. And we get to see these interactions right from the, the get-go in Genesis of a holy God who is perfect dealing with a sinful humanity. There's this tension that's building in Scripture straight away, and it's like, how is this going to work? How does a sinless, holy God who has said, I hate sin and I will destroy it from my presence, interact with people who have chosen to go, you know what? I don't want you anymore, God. Smitage. <laughs> that's... That, that's honestly what you kind of read that early narrative and you, and you see uh, what, what will happen if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die and you just expect, okay, humans are gone here. But you don't have that. You have God in his grace and mercy formulating this plan. Carry through to a point in time after the flood and after the Tower of Babel and after um, there's been murder and other nastiness going on into Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, there's a guy called Abraham you flip over, uh, yeah, here we are. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Abraham's no one special. It doesn't say God chose Abraham because he was super awesome. It doesn't say God chose Abraham because he had a capacity to have lots of kids or something like that. Or God just chose Abraham and gave him this set of promises. Have a look at it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and he who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This is almost the first point where we start to pull back the curtain of God's plans on how he's going to interact with the sinful humans. And he seems to be choosing Abraham and saying, I'm going to make for myself a people here a group of people, and that people are actually going to be a blessing to not just themselves, but to the whole world. Right from Genesis, you see this plan unfolding, and as it moves through, you see God dealing with Israel. So flip over to the next slide. This is us, the verse that we're concentrating on. It says, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations, and you will people the desolate cities. That word people there is normally a noun. We normally say, I like those people and use it like a noun. But this is peopling the desolate cities. This is using it like a verb. It's like me showing up somewhere and having lots of kids and I've peopled this place. But ultimately, what it's meaning here, will people the desolate cities. It's going to a place where there is no life and bringing life to it. So God here in Isaiah's time, while there's exile and all sorts of rubbish that has gone on, has seen fit to bring this promise down to Israel, saying, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and you will people the desolate cities. There is going to be life that springs forth from God's people for the earth. It is what will happen. That is a promise from God. Not you might, you will. And that's the passage that God has led us to. Flip over to the next slide. A theme in Scripture, which comes up over and over again. If you want to have a really good glimpse of it, have a look at the book of Judges, right? God is so gracious in building his people and calling them back to himself, and his people are just so dumb. 
time and time again, there's a leader that's raised up. He said, let's go God's way. And then no sooner is that leader sort of diminished as they're just following other gods again and again and again. And over and over and over, the track record of Scripture, it, it cries out, God has good plans, people are dumb. God has good plans, people keep stuffing it up. And over and over again, we're looking at promises like this one that's in Isaiah for us tonight, and we're going, how on earth, Lord? I mean, how on earth is this going to happen? And I think deep down, you knowing yourselves, you knowing your own hearts, you knowing that you are aptly described by this verse, everyone has sinned and actually fallen short of the glory of God. There seems to be this disconnect between God's great plan to people and bring life to the desolate places and the reality that we sometimes find ourselves in. You're a sinner. How are you going to people anything? It's a legitimate question. Look at the next verse. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is a place that humanity finds itself in that is so far gone it cannot pick itself up in any way, shape or form. It's no good thinking, I'm going to read the promises of God that we're going to be this light and this truth and this grace and think that, okay, I'm just going to pull my socks up and I'm just going to go and do, do God's will. I'm just going to go and do it. Because that's not the theme of Scripture. The theme of Scripture says that every attempt that humans have had to go and do it in their own strength and pull their socks up have only spun them back around to realize just how dead they are and just how much they've fallen short of the glory of God. That's the theme of life. And you know there's a big butt coming. Here it is. Romans 5, verse 6 to 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for those people who are really, really good. Oh, no, hang on. Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't die for you because you're awesome. God died for you because he's awesome. God didn't look down on you and go, ah, I think you're worth it. I'm going to die for you. God, in his love and because of his nature and his own grace, looked down upon you and he said, I will die for you because I am making a people. And I'm going to see the world having these life springing up in desolate places because of his own choice and his own glory and for his own sake. You're a sinner. That's the, your contribution to, to this whole gospel message is you're a sinner and you're ungodly. The Bible describes you as a as foolish, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. You read Romans 1 and you're like, oh, oh. Jeff, I thought you said this was going to be encouraging. It will be. Have a look at Ephesians 2 verses 3 to 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you've been saved. When we look at the vision and we see this picture that God's painting, we don't walk from here and go, I'm just going to do it. No, no. 
we look back at the scriptures and we look back at the gospel and we realize that the only way that we're going to be able to do squat is through Jesus. We must turn to Jesus. We, we can't cut him out in this. We can't look at the good stuff that God wants us to do and think we're going to be able to do it in our own strength. We're not good enough. We're not. Have a look at Romans 8, verses 33 to 37. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You get what it's saying there? It's like when, when Satan comes to you and says, you ain't people in nothing. You don't go, not today, Satan. I'm going to people stuff whether you like it or not. No, 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 that's not the response. The response is, well, God is the one who justified me. So you better take it up with him. Uh, you see how we can't just move through and, and bypass Jesus and go and do this vision that God's called us to do. We can't. What else does it say? Who is going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I don't know if you've had any of those recently. I had nakedness recently. No. <laughs> Famine, I haven't had. Persecution, I've had. Distress, I had. What's in your list, right? There's things in your life that will come to you and they'll say to you, either from actions that happen in your life or people that you come across, and they will preach to you, you're not even a Christian. You don't even, you don't even amount to anything. How on earth are you going to people desolate places? How on earth are you going to go and share the gospel? But Christ Jesus is the one who died. Have a look at this next bit. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through our own power. No, hang on. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We mustn't miss the through hymns the in Christs that are littered all the way through Paul's letters. It is always in Christ that we are saved. It is always in Christ that we amount to anything. Our power for functioning as a Christian in this world and achieving anything is through and in and by Christ. A more verse from Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians 5. From verse 16. We're changed for the task at hand. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded uh, Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Push pause for a second there. I couldn't amount to anything. I was dead in my trespasses. And in my deadness, I look at God's great plan and, I, and it just kind of sweeps me by because I can't jump on board with that. I'm not good enough to go and achieve any of it. And yet these verses keep coming at me saying, if we place our faith in Christ, if we are in Christ, if we do things through Christ, then we actually become new creations capable of, a, of doing what God has called us to do. This is brilliant. This is necessary. It is needed. Because if you don't understand yourselves as a new creation, if you, don't, if you can't um, see that in Christ God is transforming you from the inside out, then Satan will come at you and he'll say, you can't do this, you can't do this. You say, yes, I can, I'm a new creation. 
in Christ, God is transforming me, Satan. I'm on board with what God's doing. Let's read what it is. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, who are we now? We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the trajectory of a gospel-interacted human who has placed their faith in Jesus? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God has made us alive in Christ because of his own good and his own glory, not because of our merit. And through him, we are actually transformed to be more than conquerors, becomes new creations who are now ambassadors for him in the world. And when you look at all of that strip of transformation that Paul so clearly communicates repeatedly in his letters, it is all and only through Christ. We don't progress through the Christian life without repeatedly coming back to Christ. But when we do, when we see ourselves in this strip of things that, that, that God has done in our life, we understand we are now standing as ambassadors for Christ. And when you hear that command of God spread out, oh, you hear it differently when you're one of Christ's ambassadors. When you're a new creation, like this is joy, this is life, this is purpose, this is achievable in Christ. Oh man, this is good. So we have a Flip back and have a look at the trajectory of human history. We've gone right back to Genesis and looked at Abraham. and We've got this promise from Isaiah that we're, that we're looking at. I want to flip forward to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's really interesting and unique because we've got these Christ-transformed new creation people kicking around now, right? This is the point at where Christ has died and he's arisen and the Holy Spirit has come and indwelt people. And so we've got these Holy Spirit indwelt people who are capable of peopling desolate places. Right at the start of the book of Acts, you're like, oh, here we go. What is going to happen now? Now, the book of Acts is too long for me to read to you tonight. I wish it wasn't. It's an awesome book. You should go and read it. But the book of Acts has a little cheat. <laughs> uh, it's got these little summary verses in it that help us kind of track the big story of Acts by just snipping into little verses along the way. So what I want to do is just read to you some of these summary verses from the book of Acts. They're all going to be very, very similar, and we're all going to bring out a big theme of what happens when we um, peel back God's big plan and see the way that it's going to happen. So let's look at Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice it doesn't say, you might be my witnesses. It says, you will be my witnesses. And Jerusalem is like one little area. Judea is a bit larger. Samaria is a bit larger again. And then it goes to the ends of the earth. You get the spread out stuff right from the start of the book of Acts. It's what's happening. It's what is in God's plan. It's what he's doing. Then what happens in Acts 2, verse 46 and 47? Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Good on them praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Life is coming. This is brilliant. Acts 6, 7. 
And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. I love that verse. You know what it would have been like to be a priest? To wake up in the morning and go, well, we've got to get some sins dealt with today and become a butcher all of a sudden. And to go and grab your lamb and make sure there's blood splattering everywhere and chuck it on the altar and make sure it was sacrificed correctly by following all that. That was the priest's life, right? What does that verse say? That a great number of priests are becoming obedient to the faith. They're actually turning their head from sacrificing lambs every day to the lamb who was sacrificed once for all time, Jesus. Brilliant. Wonderful. How? Well, the people of God are preaching the gospel of God not because they're awesome, but because Jesus is. Over and over and over again through the book of Acts, we see this multiplication taking place. Let's keep reading. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Still gone. Acts 12.24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, At this point in Acts, there's this really cool shift that happens. Remember Acts chapter 1? It said in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That was kind of the trajectory of God's disciples. At about Acts 13, there's a change that takes place. The multiplication so far was happening in kind of uh, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But now, at about Acts 13, we start to read multiplication happening. But it's actually not just happening in those three little errors. It's actually reached this end of the earth kind of stuff. Paul is on missionary journeys out to the Gentiles. These are non-Jews. These are people who, when they're in their house, um, they've probably got a little statue of, of something that they kind of worship because uh, if they don't worship it, they won't make any money for the year. How's, how's the message of Christianity? How's the peopling of that desolate place there going to go? Is the, is the question in the back of their mind. And what does it say in Acts 16.5? So the churches were strengthened in the face and they increased in numbers daily. Even out in Gentile land where people don't naturally have anything to do with God are turning their eyes to Jesus. Why? Not because people are awesome, but because Jesus is awesome. The promise that the the gospel will go forth doesn't find its uh, yes and amen in you and me. It finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love the book of Acts. There's this explosion of Christianity, of spirit-filled humans. The Old Testament just so full of people spinning around and around and around and around in sin, begging this, when will we be free? And in Christ... And people that have placed their faith in Christ, we see God's big plan that he started way, way back is finding it's flourishing and it's moving and it's growing and it's multiplying and it's wonderful. Flip over to the next uh, slide there. Um, I went to a church planning conference uh, with Lem and, and Oddie. That was really cool. That's not the church planning conference, by the way. That's the Colosseum in, uh, in Rome. There was a guy, Matt Chandler, who was one of the speakers at the conference. He shared a story, which is really cool. I thought I'd share it because it fits in well. He is the, the um, president of this global church planting movement. He interacts with people all over the globe who are wanting to plant churches and see the gospel flourish. These new creation people who are like, I know the gospel and I love to share it with others. People who have been transformed. That's what, what he's doing. He's at a conference that he's speaking at in Europe because he wants to see the gospel flourish in Europe. 
at one of the downtimes in the conference, he thought, I've got some downtime, I'm going to go sightseeing. So he went to the Colosseum. That's, that's the Colosseum there. He paid his 20 bucks. You can go in and take a look around and stuff. And he had a thought while he was in there. The thought was, the Roman Empire is just about the, the most successful human-designed um, empire that this earth has ever seen. When you think about it in terms of time, uh, America, I think, as a, as a nation, seems to have been around for about 200 years or something like that. I don't know, Australia, maybe a little bit over 200 years for America. But the Roman Empire, just before Jesus, like uh, BC 25-ish, through to 14-something. That's the Roman Empire. The most successful uh, uh, attempt to sort of um, draw people together around a cause, and the cause seemed to be worship the emperor, worship Caesar. And here was Matt Chandler, part of this global Jesus-honoring movement, standing in the ruins of the greatest civilization that ever was, praising King Jesus. The Roman Empire tried to cross Christianity, and it couldn't. It wasn't because Paul's really awesome. It wasn't because Peter's really awesome. And Paul probably got his head chopped off. Peter probably got crucified upside down by the Roman Empire. They, they dealt with them. What they didn't deal with was Jesus. Because they can't. He's the king. And he's in his people, causing the message to flourish. The Roman Empire is done and dusted. Nobody worships Caesar anymore. But there's people all around the planet who have been obedient to the call to spread out, to enlarge the tent, who are worshipping King Jesus. We're on the winning team. So I ask a question then. Uh, what does this look like? What I mean by this is, what does it look like to actually spread out, to enlarge the tent in this world? We looked at Acts, but we're fast-forwarding more than just Acts, and we're here in the here and now. And ultimately, it looks like a very similar story to what it looked like in Acts. You've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to wake up each morning and devote yourself, not to yourself, not to your own plans, not to your things that you want to get done in the day, but the things that Jesus would have you get done in the day. Die daily. That's tough but it's not impossible because we're new creation people. Jesus has changed us. A uh, guy, Jeff Vanderstelt, I listened to a podcast of his. He was uh, explaining the way that he seeks to make disciples of Jesus. Um, he moves into an area, like in a street or something like that, and he basically just opens up his life and his house uh, to people who are around in the area. It might be an old lady across the road. It might be some neighbors or whoever it might be. And they come to his house and they just get to know and he creates his house as this community beacon in the area so that he can model what it's like to live for Jesus so that he can spread out and enlarge his tent and, and help people come to understand Jesus. And uh, one of the things he mentioned was he said, you know what, this is not easy by the world's standards. In fact, since I've been living like that and he's been doing it for many, many years, 20 plus years, He's had stuff just plain stolen out of his house. People have just taken it. He's had stuff broken that was uh, precious to him. He's had people use the closeness of life that they've seen in being in his home regularly to go and slander him in other places and call him out for not being a Jesus-y enough person or you know, these kinds of things. 
And on the podcast, I was like, oh, man, that's a bit depressing. I want to live like that. I, I want people in my life to see Jesus. I want to live close enough that people can see Jesus in me and, and love Jesus with me. So I was like, oh, that's a bit depressing. What are you saying? I'm going to have broken stuff. People are going to steal my things and slander me. Thanks a lot, Jeff Van Stolt. But then he said, I wouldn't change anything because my stuff is nowhere near worth what Christ is to me. There's this Christ-centeredness of a life that has been transformed by the gospel that means that we will walk into the desolate places and, yeah, they'll be desolate. They'll be hard, people will be broken, but Jesus, Jesus will be king in that spot. Jesus will bring life through us in that spot if we understand that we're going to do it through him, not through our own strength. Another example during the week um, is uh, an elderly couple had a knock on the door. And they opened the door and it was their neighbor. She'd just been beaten up by her husband or a partner. Domestic violence incident. Now they know instantly there's an angry dude next door. <laughs> Might want to know where his, his wife is or his partner is. They've got an option here. What do I do here? What do I do? They welcomed her in. They called some other Christians around. They prayed with her. They, they sought to minister to her needs. They helped her get her child uh, out of the house and prayed for her. They tried to set her up with a place to say that was going to be safe. And I asked myself the question, well, that's you know, what, what, if, what if she was crazy? What if she was just getting in for something else? What if the guy comes back from it? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? There's a big long list of reasons why they didn't have to do what they did. But they're people who are transformed by Jesus. And they know Jesus would have a welcome in. They were being obedient to Jesus in the power of Jesus. And the anthem of that whole situation and the situation with Jeff Van isn't um, Jeff Vanestelt's awesome, or this couple is awesome. No, no, the anthem is Jesus is awesome. The history, the way that it tracks through from Genesis to Isaiah to Acts to us needs a little bit that's over there still, and the Bible's not silent about that either. You see, in Revelation, there are going to be people who are singing a song might not seem glorious to you now, but it will then, trust me. <laughs> and the song goes, worthy, worthy, worthy are all the people who open their doors to domestic violence. No. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. You see, they're going to be singing Jesus at the end of days. Not you. Not me. Not Forest Lake Baptist. They're going to be singing Jesus. And so the greater we can align ourselves with Jesus, the greater we will see and know what it truly means to spread out, to, to show up in a desolate place and know that Jesus is giving you the strength and power to see the gospel flourish in it. The, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that all of Scripture paints and all of history paints, and it all points to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to know that if you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus to keep going back to him again and again and again, he is the one you need. He, he, he is the one who's going to give you the strength to be involved. It's beautiful, not just because it's beautiful like a rainbow that's out there, but we are in it. Your tomorrow, you could be in the most beautiful story that's been told in all of humanity if you would trust in Jesus. If you would wake up tomorrow and ask the question instead of, 
what have I got to do today to meet all my needs? And start asking yourself the question, Jesus, what would you have me do today? I'm going to pray. If you're somebody who hasn't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you should. There is nowhere else to get life. And if you're somewhere, someone who has placed your faith in Jesus, then you need to keep going back to Jesus because there's nowhere else to get life. If you're somebody who wants to reach the world for Jesus, then you need to keep going back to Jesus because there's no other place that you're going to bring life from to those desolate places. The whole of humanity is all about Jesus. You need him tomorrow. You need him tonight. You need him now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to us. We thank you that Jesus doesn't just come to us and look at us in our sin. We thank you that Jesus comes to us in our brokenness, in our deadness, and he lifts us up and gives us life. I pray we might continue to return to the well of your word, that we might continue to turn our hearts and our minds and our eyes to to Jesus, that when we are out and about in life, Lord, that we might be out and about for you, through you, about you, because of you. Lord, I thank you that all the way around in Forest Lake, that your scriptures say that you will people the desolate places. Not that you might, but that you will. Oh, thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray for uh, Palara. I pray for Anala. I pray for Carol Park. I pray for all of the places that these people uh, live in, Lord, that they would be peopled, not because we are awesome, but because you are. May the anthem of our hearts be, Jesus is King. Look to Jesus, everyone. And Lord, I love the fact that we are joining a plan that has been there from the beginning, that you and your word have revealed to us that you're like that coach saying, hey, I've got a plan. Spread out. And Lord, as we spread out, I just long to see you get your glory. I long to see not just little pockets of people here worshipping you, but people everywhere worshipping you, Lord. I look forward to being in heaven, singing to my King Jesus. I look forward to making him the anthem of my life, Lord. So please, Lord, in your grace and mercy to all of us here in this room, where sin rears its ugly head, I pray that we might say we are more than conquerors in him. When Satan wants to accuse us and tell us we can't, I pray that we might turn and say, Christ Jesus was the one who died. Father, help us to always turn our minds, our hearts, our lives to Jesus. And I pray that in his name, knowing that you're a God who hears and who answers your people. Amen.